American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tuesday, June 17th, 1788, on a tiny rocky island at the head of the Boston Harbor. Two brothers stand at the top of a lighthouse tower, looking out over the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. The older brother is a keeper at the Boston Lighthouse, the first lighthouse station on the North American continent. Originally, the tower was erected to detect enemy vessels. But today, the lighthouse keeper's not on the lookout for a British warship, but instead he and his brother are waiting for the arrival of a very special guest. When will we be here? Any moment now. Is everything in order? I certainly hope so. For days, the citizens of Boston have been hard at work preparing for this momentous occasion. Boston pulled out all the stops. Governor John Hancock lent his private coach. There'll be a parade, a citywide celebration, and a private reception at the Guest of Honor's home in Beacon Hill. But the younger brother's not in a celebratory mood. Not yet. Right now, he looks concerned. What, do you think he'll make it? Of course he will. 60 days is a long time to be at sea. Don't worry. He'll make it. God willing. The younger brother's not wrong to be concerned. Any trip on the high seas is dangerous, but a journey across the Atlantic Ocean is one of the most dangerous journeys of all. And this particular vessel is carrying precious cargo, true American royalty. Just then, the younger brother points to the horizon. Ah, look! The lighthouse keeper reaches for his telescope, and in the distance, he sees her sails, the Lucretia. He turns to his brother. Sound the cannons, right away. The lighthouse keeper makes his way down the long winding flight of steps as fast as he can. When he reaches the bottom, he runs for the shore, hops in a pilot boat and pushes out in the direction of the ship. In the distance, he hears church bells ringing. He looks back towards the shore and sees a massive crowd of people gathering at the dock. His boat meets the Lucretia just as she makes her way into the harbor. The lighthouse keeper looks up and on the deck of the ship stands the man all of Boston has been waiting for, his wife by his side. The lighthouse keeper holds his hand in the air and gives a welcoming wave. The man waves back, a big smile on his face. His wife is smiling too. The lighthouse keeper can't help but smile back. After five long years in London, the most famous man in Massachusetts is finally back where he belongs. John Adams is home. Wicked Game is sponsored by Factor. You know that nursery rhyme, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot nine days old? 
Well, the first thing you need to know is that peas porridge was a real thing. Second, it's spelled P-E-A-S-E, a Middle English plural noun like flour, but made from legumes like peas. Third, it was the ultimate in medieval convenience food. Boil up anything you had in a single pot until you get a viscous slime, eat what you can stand, then just keep eating. Hot or cold, throwing in more stuff as you go. Nine days old may not be an exaggeration. So convenient, but not tasty, and maybe even rancid. These days, we are so much better off with Factor. Same convenience, much more taste, and a lot less gross. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. Chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door with over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy with 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and certainly better than throwing whatever you can scrounge into a pot. Head to factormeals.com slash wickedgame50 and use code wickedgame50 to get 50% off. That's code wickedgame50 at factormeals.com slash wickedgame50 to get 50% off. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? It could come at any time in the morning, midday, in the evening. You could sleep in. You could actually take a lunch. You could go on an evening walk. I'd like to say I'd take a nap or read a book, but knowing me, I'd probably end up working because there's always work to do, right? A lot of us wish we had more time. But time for what? Do you know what's important to you? How to make it a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. Thomas Knox was America's first lighthouse keeper and a longtime friend of John and Abigail Adams. In June of 1788, the Knox brothers and thousands of Bostonians gathered to celebrate the return of a founding father and Massachusetts native, John Adams. Adams was away in Europe for five years. During his time there, he served in a variety of diplomatic posts, including the first ever American minister to Great Britain. When he left for Europe, Adams was already something of a national celebrity. He played an integral role in the Continental Congress and in the creation of the Declaration of Independence. He served two terms as George Washington's vice president, but his political ambitions did not stop with the second highest office in the land. Adams wanted to be president, and in the eyes of many in his political party, the Federalists, Adams was George Washington's heir apparent. But not everyone agreed. Thomas Jefferson was the leader of the opposition faction, the Democratic-Republicans, or often just Republicans. 
Jefferson did not want an Adams presidency. He wanted the office for himself. But the threats to Adams' presidency were not confined to the other side of the aisle. There was another Federalist politician with grand political ambitions, Washington's right-hand man, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. The election of 1796, the first contested election in U.S. history, was defined by partisan bickering, political maneuvering, and in the case of Alexander Hamilton, personal weakness. This is Episode 3, 1796, The First Contest. Alexander Hamilton was one of the most impactful figures in American political history. The orphaned immigrant from the Caribbean, who rose to become the nation's first Treasury Secretary under George Washington, was the leader of the Federalists and the creator of the modern-day financial system. His name carries the weight of a Washington, an Adams, or a Jefferson, and yet Hamilton never ran for president. The story of why began, as Hamilton wrote, sometime in the summer of the year 1791. As Hamilton explained, a woman called at my house in the city of Philadelphia and asked to speak with me in private. I attended her into a room apart from the family. Her name was Mariah Reynolds, a beguiling 23-year-old woman who told Hamilton a sad story about her husband, James Reynolds. As Hamilton explained, Mariah told him that James had treated her very cruelly and had left her to live with another woman and in so destitute a condition that, though desirous of returning to her friends, she had not the means. Hamilton expressed his sympathy, but explained that she had called on him at an inopportune moment. He showed her out and told her he would deliver her a small amount of money later that evening. Hamilton made good on his promise. As he explained, In the evening, I put a bank bill in my pocket and went to the house. I inquired for Mrs. Reynolds and was shown upstairs, at the head of which she met me and conducted me into a bedroom. I took the bill out of my pocket and gave it to her. Some conversation ensued, from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. This would be the first of many rendezvous between Alexander Hamilton and Mariah Reynolds. As Hamilton would later recall, I had frequent meetings with her, most of them at my own house. But the whole affair was a setup. Mariah and her husband had laid a trap, and soon Hamilton was making frequent hush money payments to the husband who was threatening to expose Hamilton's infidelity. Hamilton had every reason to want to keep this scandal under wraps, his wife Eliza for one, his political ambitions for another, but perhaps, though, there was still yet another reason. His relationship with President George Washington. Since the war, Hamilton had been Washington's most trusted advisor. If Hamilton's secret were to be made public, it would bring shame not only on him, but on George Washington, a man Hamilton loved and feared in equal measure. By falling into the arms of Mariah Reynolds, Hamilton was giving his enemies ammunition, and he was putting himself and his own career in the line of fire. Hamilton's secret affair with Mariah Reynolds continued for well over a year. He might have succeeded in keeping it under wraps were it not for the actions of her husband. In November 1791, James Reynolds was arrested in Philadelphia, along with a man named Jacob Klingman. Reynolds and Klingman were charged with defrauding the U.S. government of $400, almost 11000 today. But a congressman from Pennsylvania named Frederick Mullenberg intervened on his friend Mr. Klingman's behalf. Mullenberg arranged a deal. Reynolds and Klingman would pay back the money, and in exchange, they would avoid jail time. As Treasury Secretary, Hamilton agreed to the arrangement. 
The story might have died there, and the scandal might have been lost to history, but Klingman couldn't resist telling Congressman Mullenberg about a juicy bit of salacious gossip. His partner in crime, James Reynolds, could prove that Alexander Hamilton had engaged in financial impropriety as the Secretary of the Treasury. Congressman Mullenberg was a Republican and had no love for Alexander Hamilton or the Federalists. But Mullenberg needed more than the word of a criminal. He needed evidence. Mariah Reynolds provided it. She gave Klingman several notes sent by Hamilton to her husband, James Reynolds, and Klingman presented those notes to Congressman Mullenberg. Hamilton's secret was now in the hands of his political enemies. It's December 15, 1792, at Alexander Hamilton's office at the State Department in Philadelphia, the nation's temporary capital. Hamilton sits at his desk, poring over documents and dispatches. Come in. Three Republican statesmen stand in the doorway. Congressman Frederick Mullenberg, Congressman Abraham B. Venable, and Senator James Monroe. Well, this is certainly a surprise. What can I do for you, gentlemen? Mullenberg steps forward and leads off. We have an important matter to discuss. Well, by all means. I'm afraid it's rather delicate, Mr. Hamilton. Then close the door behind you. Would you care to sit? No, we won't be long. Venable and Monroe hang back near the door, stoic and silent. Mullenberg takes the lead. We have discovered, Mr. Hamilton, what can only be described as a rather improper connection between you and one Mr. James Reynolds. Hamilton flares red with anger. Sirs, leave the room at once. Mr. Hamilton, I do not appreciate being accused of impropriety in my own office. You misunderstand, Mr. Hamilton. We do not take the fact for established, though I must admit the evidence is rather convincing. What evidence? Mullenberg lays a series of documents on Hamilton's desk. See for yourself. As Hamilton thumbs through the stack of letters, Mullenberg asks, Do you deny you wrote these letters to James Reynolds? The writing is mine, sir. Hamilton sinks into his seat and lays the letters on his desk. We did not seek these out, Mr. Hamilton. They were given to us. We contemplated laying the matter before the president, but we thought you had the right to know first so that you might offer an explanation. We mean you no ill will, sir. We are here out of a sense of public duty. Hamilton believes Mullenberg's only duty is to Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans, but he pushes down his anger, maintains his composure, and offers a measured reply. There is a pecuniary connection between Mr. Reynolds and myself. I do not deny it. The letters, too, are authentic, yet you mistake their meaning. How so? I have done nothing improper in my role as Treasury Secretary. As it happens, gentlemen, it is within my power to provide additional documents that will remove all doubt as to the true nature of this business. Where are these documents? At my home. If you gentlemen would be my guest this evening, I will happily put the matter to rest. Will that suffice you, Mr. Mullenberg? Mullenberg looks to Venable and Monroe. The two men nod in silent agreement. This evening, then. I trust you can see yourselves out. Thank you for your candor, Mr. Hamilton. Thank you for acting upon your sense of duty. That night, in Hamilton's own words, I insisted upon going through the whole affair and did so. Hamilton would write that the three men delicately urged me to discontinue the story, but Hamilton told them everything, from beginning to end, from the details of the affair with Mariah to her husband's extortion. 
At the end of the meeting, the three statesmen were satisfied that Hamilton had done nothing improper as Treasury Secretary. The scandal was merely an affair, not financial impropriety. They agreed to keep the events confidential and went on their way. But it would be a promise that at least one of them would break. As Ben Franklin once observed, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Two days after the meeting in his office, Hamilton requested the Mariah Reynolds papers. James Monroe kept the originals and had copies prepared for Hamilton. The task of making those copies was given to a man named John Beckley, a longtime friend of Thomas Jefferson, the clerk for the House of Representatives and a future political operative for the Republicans. If Beckley had made more than one set of copies of the Mariah Reynolds papers, there's little doubt he showed them to Hamilton's greatest political enemy, Thomas Jefferson. Days after his meeting with the three statesmen, Hamilton wrote, "'Tis the malicious intrigues to stab me in the dark, against which I am too often obliged to guard myself." The Mariah Reynolds affair would hang over Hamilton's head for years to come. In early May of 1793, Hamilton received a letter from an old friend, Henry Lee of Virginia. Lee wrote, "'Was I with you, I would talk an hour with doors bolted and windows shut, as my heart is much afflicted by some whispers which I have heard.'" Hamilton was a rising political star. Had he desired to run for president, he would have had strong support from the Federalists and potentially the endorsement of George Washington. But Alexander Hamilton never expressed any outward intention to run, not in 1796 and not ever. In his biography of Hamilton, author and historian Ron Chernow offers an interesting theory as to why. In the fall of 1796, a man named Noah Webster, the editor of the Minerva, a Federalist newspaper, floated Hamilton's name as a candidate for president. According to gossip journalist James T. Callender, shortly after the Minerva endorsement, a Republican operative confronted Hamilton in New York to inform him that, if Webster should in future print a single paragraph on that head, the Reynolds affair would be laid before the world. After that, Noah Webster kept his mouth shut about Alexander Hamilton. Perhaps Hamilton knew his personal mistakes made his candidacy impossible. Perhaps he was worried about preserving his marriage to his wife Eliza or the reputation of George Washington. Whatever the reason, the presidency was something Hamilton never sought. In modern times, candidates typically plan their campaigns for years in advance. They put themselves forward. They vie for the party's nomination in a primary used to whittle down candidates to a single national ticket. But in 1796, the modern system would have seemed outlandish, appalling. Even the notion of campaigning was considered scandalous. Party tickets or running mates were not even contemplated by the Constitution, and the idea of political parties was reviled. George Washington had never sought the office, and he never made public overtures advocating for himself. And so, in the upcoming contest, Adams and Jefferson would abide by the precedent Washington had set. In February of 1796, Adams would write to his wife, I am determined to be a silent spectator of the silly and wicked game. Still, in spite of public sentiment, the two political factions were maturing into organized parties. Leaders in Congress recognized the need to bring together the diverse interests of the states and achieve national unity. And in the late 1790s, a new partisan system of choosing candidates emerged. Months before George Washington officially announced his intention not to seek a third term, Republicans were already hard at work putting the new system into play. In April of 1796, Republican members of Congress met in a secret caucus. 
It was arguably the first National Party Caucus in American political history, and the origin of the nominating process that would come to be called King Caucus. At this meeting, the leadership of each state unanimously agreed to back Thomas Jefferson for president. After learning of the Republican Caucus, Alexander Hamilton wrote to a fellow Federalist, A most important crisis ensues. Great evils may result unless good men play their cards well and with great promptitude and decision. For the lack of open political campaigning by presidential candidates left a void ripe for exploitation. The war of political ideas would be fought not in the halls of Congress or the seats of power, but in the small towns and rural communities of a key battleground state that could sway the entire outcome of the 1796 election, Pennsylvania. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. 2024 is going to be a watershed year for my business. We've hired up, made ambitious plans, and that means, yes, new podcasts. But also, we crossed a point of complexity that's made it more important than ever to know our numbers. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections. netsuite.com slash elections. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at intohistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her Half of History is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's fall, 1796. Two men on horseback make their way through a small town in Northumberland County, over 100 miles northwest of Pennsylvania. The riders are traveling light, bare necessities only. They have journeyed hundreds of miles, making their way around Pennsylvania, drumming up support for their presidential candidate of choice, Vice President John Adams. The two riders stop in front of a saloon on the outskirts of town. There's an older gentleman on his way inside. As the old man makes his way up a small flight of stairs, one of the riders dismounts and calls out to him. Excuse me, sir. A moment of your time. Sure. Why not? One writer launches into a prepared speech, the same speech he's been making for days to any Pennsylvanian who will listen. The gist is simple. Vote for your state electors, and when you do, vote the Federalist ticket. But the older gentleman doesn't seem receptive. Ah, uh, hell, I don't even know who's running. Well, that's what this is for. 
The other writer hands the old man a small piece of paper, an election ticket with 15 names on it, 15 Federalist electors. We've done the hard work for you. All you have to do is take this with you when you go to vote. All right, easy enough. Remember, vote Federalist. As the riders mount their horses and gallop into town, the old man stares at the ticket for a moment. He doesn't recognize a single name. Just as he's about to slip it in his pocket and head inside, he hears the sound of another horse approaching. Excuse me, sir. Another man dressed in all black stops in front of the saloon. He quickly dismounts, ties up his horse, and saunters up to the old man. Were those two gentlemen bothering you? I don't suppose you could say that. Say, can I see that ticket? The old man hands the gentleman in black his ticket. Would you mind if I take this? Not at all. Those names mean nothing to me. What about Thomas McKean? Certainly you know him, don't you? Judge McKean? Of course. Who do you want to pick the next president? Judge McKean or these nobodies? Well, the judge, certainly. Tell you what, you take this. The man in black hands the old man a different ticket with 15 different names on it, and I'll take this. He slips the Federalist ticket in his pocket. Here, take some more, in fact. Pass them out to your friends inside and enjoy your drink and vote Republican. Major John Smith, a Republican operative, had been trailing the two Federalist riders for over 60 miles, collecting their tickets just as quickly as they passed them out, and he collected a sizable stack. He kept a handful for opposition research, but tossed the rest into the fire. One of America's earliest and perhaps most confusing political institutions is the Electoral College. Under the Constitution, it is the electors who are the ones who vote directly for president, not the people. And in 1796, there were 16 states with 16 unique sets of rules for choosing electors. In states like New York, Connecticut, and Tennessee, the people voted for state representatives, and once elected, those representatives chose the electors. But in some states, electors were chosen directly by the people through a popular vote. One of those states was Pennsylvania, and it was there, in many respects, that America's first modern presidential campaign took place. In drumming up support for their candidates, Federalists focused their efforts on major cities like Philadelphia, the nation's temporary capital, but the Republicans focused on rural communities like Northumberland County. The Republican campaign was spearheaded by a political operative named John Beckley, the same man who had allegedly delivered Thomas Jefferson the Maria Reynolds papers. Beckley was arguably America's first campaign manager, and he had his work cut out for him. In 1796, Federalists controlled the Pennsylvania state legislature, which gave them a massive advantage. Federalists there had succeeded in securing a statewide popular vote for presidential electors. This favored their party because of strong Federalist support in heavily populated cities like Philadelphia. Rural areas tended to favor Republicans. But due to their remote locations, traveling to the polls was often prohibitive. Perhaps knowing this, Pennsylvania Federalists scheduled the presidential election just a few weeks after the state election. Most rural Pennsylvanians could not afford to make the long trip to the poll twice in a month. And the Federalists had banned pre-printed tickets. Voters were required to present handwritten ballots with the names of 15 electors. This, too, was a challenge for rural voters, many of whom were illiterate. So the first thing Beckley and his team of lieutenants did was print voter guides in mass with instructions on how to vote and who to vote for, picking electors with statewide name recognition. 
One guide read, Subjoined is a list of 15 good Republicans, friends of the people who love liberty, hate monarchy, and will vote for a Republican president. Remember, Friday the 4th of November. It was illegal to pre-print ballots, but the law said nothing about pre-writing them. So Beckley hired a team of nearly a dozen clerks, and in the weeks leading up to the election, they worked around the clock and created 50,000 handwritten ballots, which were distributed around the state by operatives like Major John Smith, the man who stole Federalist tickets in Northumberland County. In the fall of 1796, Major Smith traveled the rural parts of Pennsylvania doing Beckley's bidding and ginning up support for Republican candidates. In a report to Beckley, Smith wrote, I undertook and performed a journey of more than 600 miles. The object I had solely in view was to make Mr. Jefferson president. For upwards of three weeks that I was out, there was not one day I was not on horseback before the sun rose, nor put up at night till after it set. In that time, I held 18 public meetings. These town hall-style meetings were held all across the state. Citizens who attended were given the chance to participate, to vote on potential electors to be included in voter guides and on pre-written tickets. It was a true grassroots campaign, unprecedented for its time. But the Republicans weren't the only ones hard at work in Pennsylvania. In the city of Philadelphia, the Federalists were at war with the opposition party, but with each other too. Between October and November of 1796, John Fenno's Federalist newspaper in Philadelphia, the Gazette of the United States, published dozens of editorials by a writer calling himself Phocian. Phocian used his platform primarily to attack Thomas Jefferson. The anonymous writer was, of course, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. And on October 15th, he wrote an essay that ventured into dangerous territory. In the essay, Hamilton made reference to Thomas Jefferson's sexual relationship with one of his slaves, a woman named Sally Hemings. Jefferson's wife, Martha, had passed away in 1782. In the years that followed, Jefferson had fathered at least six of Sally Hemings' children. She had worked in the Jefferson household and traveled with him to Paris. Later in life, Jefferson would free Sally's children, the only slave family he would ever free. But in spite of the special treatment Sally received, Jefferson had to keep their relationship a secret. It would have disgraced his reputation with his fellow Virginians, and it would have given ammunition to his political enemies. With the election approaching, in the fall of 1796, Hamilton decided to use that ammunition. In another essay, written on October 19th, Phocian made another reference to Jefferson's sexual life, writing that Jefferson's simplicity and humility afford but a flimsy veil to the internal evidences of aristocratic splendor, sensuality, and epicureanism. In response, on October 23rd, a Republican newspaper called the Aurora fired back with an anonymous editorial that took aim at Hamilton's private life, specifically the Mariah Reynolds affair. The unnamed author asked why Hamilton had not been properly investigated as Treasury Secretary, writing, Would a publication of the circumstances of that transaction redound to the honor or reputation of the parties? And why has the subject been so long and carefully smothered up? After that editorial, Phocian stopped taking shots at Jefferson's bedroom activities. Although there is no evidence, Virginian James Monroe had a theory about who wrote the article in the Aurora. He told a friend, I presume that Beckley published the papers in question. Hamilton feared a Jefferson presidency more than almost anything. In the fall of 1796, he wrote, All personal and partial considerations must give way to the great object of excluding Jefferson. But there was something else he feared, 
a threat from within the ranks of his own party. John Adams may have been the Federalist Party's heir apparent, but Alexander Hamilton was determined to deprive him of the throne. Hamilton's strategy to deny the presidency to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams was simple. Find a respected Southern Federalist who could steal votes away from Adams in the North and Jefferson in the South. Hamilton's man was Thomas Pinckney, a war hero, a diplomat, and the former governor of South Carolina. The reputable Pinckney had name recognition, but he had strikes against him too. Pinckney was a plantation owner, and he was ardently pro-slavery. Because of his conduct as vice president, John Adams was still popular with many in his party, especially in the North, where anti-slavery sentiment was more common. So Hamilton had to be clever. Publicly, he encouraged all electors to vote evenly for Adams and Pinckney. But behind closed doors, he was singing a different tune. Writing again as Phocion, Hamilton urged, Were I a Southern planter owning Negroes, I should be 10,000 times more alarmed at Mr. Jefferson's ardent wish for emancipation than at Mr. Adams' system of checks and balances. But Hamilton was not giving a nod to Adams. He was blowing a dog whistle to Southern voters. Federalists in the South were ardently pro-slavery. If Jefferson could be cast as an advocate of emancipation, Hamilton hoped that Southern pro-slavery interests would reject Jefferson, pass over the anti-slavery John Adams, and swing to his candidate, Thomas Pinckney. Pinckney was already far more popular than Adams in the South, and if Hamilton could build a coalition of Jefferson defectors in the South and win over enough electors in the North, Pinckney could edge Adams out. Adams did not see Hamilton coming, but Thomas Jefferson did. He wrote a letter to Adams, You may be cheated of your succession by a trick worthy the subtlety of your arch-friend of New York. But at the urging of James Madison, Jefferson never sent the letter. Madison convinced Jefferson his letter might be misconstrued as an attempt to gin up discontent among the Federalists. It was better to leave the scheming to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's ploy would not stay a secret forever, though. In the run-up to the 1796 election, the truth would come out, and his plan would backfire. Hamilton's relationship with John Adams would be damaged, his standing in the Federalist Party compromised, and his greatest political enemy, Thomas Jefferson, would be handed the second highest office in the land. Hamilton's scheme would be exposed by one of his longtime political foes, the powerhouse in New York politics, and Thomas Jefferson's vice presidential running mate, Senator Aaron Burr. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Gather round, friend, and join me by the fire. I have a secret to share. When I was a child, I lived with my grandma. She allowed me to watch Unsolved Mysteries. Fast forward to 2008, my freshman year of college. 
a series of armed robberies on campus escalated into a serial rapist's reign of terror. That's when I created my first crime podcast. In January 2014, I picked up the podcast again from my college roommate who fell for an underage girl online to the chilling story of a murdered nun in 1969 Baltimore and in the Throwaway series. I share my own journey of overcoming homelessness and how that experience led me to unmask a serial killer and identify three of his Jane Doe victims. This is Foul Play Crime Series, where the stories are real and the truth is awaiting to be discovered. Over the years, Hamilton and Burr had found themselves on opposite sides of nearly every contest. In the early 1790s, Hamilton had subverted Burr's campaign for governor of New York. In 1792, Hamilton repeated the insult by actively campaigning against Burr's bid for vice president. But in December of 1796, Burr returned the favor. He gave John Adams evidence of Hamilton's pro-Pinckney scheme. Perhaps Burr was looking for payback or perhaps his motives were more self-interested. Burr had personal skin in the game. He had emerged as a contender in the 1796 election, a Republican favorite for Jefferson's vice president. And since as far back as September 1796, he had been making the rounds in New England, whipping up support for his candidacy. Though Burr identified as a Republican, in the 1796 contest, his allegiance was questionable. Members of both parties expressed concern that Burr was only in it for himself. So perhaps Burr handed over the evidence in an attempt to stir up division in the Federalist Party and give himself a better chance of winning the vice presidency. Adams was livid. He called Hamilton a Creole bastard and a hypocrite. Abigail wrote to her husband, Beware that spare Cassius has always occurred to me when I have seen that cock sparrow, she wrote. Oh, I have read his heart in his wicked eyes. The very devil is in them. They are lasciviousness itself. John replied to his wife, I shall take no more notice of his puppyhood, but return him to the same conduct that I always did, that is, to keep him at a distance. The Adamses weren't the only ones revulsed by Hamilton's scheming. When New England electors learned of Hamilton's plot, they were insulted. These pro-Adams electors likely would have given their second votes to Pinckney, but in retaliation against Hamilton, they voted for Thomas Jefferson instead. When the ballots from all 16 states were counted in February of 1797, the result was a split ticket. Adams was elected president with 71 votes, Jefferson vice president with 68. Pinckney came in third with 59. Aaron Burr made the poorest showing, receiving only 30 votes. This resulted in the first and only time in American history that president and vice president were elected from different political factions. As Hamilton ruefully observed, the lion and the lamb are to lie down together. John Adams' inauguration was held on Saturday, March 4, 1797, in Philadelphia. The hall was filled to the brim with the who's who of the nation's temporary capital. Washington, Jefferson, and Adams stood together at the dais. The two Virginians towered over the shorter, plumper, less impressive Adams. Still, his impassioned speech brought many in the audience to tears. He would later tell his wife that this moment was the most affecting and overpowering scene I ever acted in. But Adams knew the tears were not for him alone. The crowd was also saying goodbye to their beloved General Washington. 
Adams would also later write of the event. A solemn scene it was indeed. Methought I heard Washington think, Aye, I am fairly out, and you are fairly in. See which of us will be the happiest. Adams had won the election by a thin margin, just three votes, and blamed Hamilton for his poor showing. But perhaps the real culprit was the Republican Party's well-oiled political machine. New England had voted solidly for Adams, the South just as solid for Jefferson. But in Philadelphia, the results painted an interesting picture of what might be in store for the country. Republicans had won Pennsylvania. They had taken Philadelphia County with more than 80% of the vote and had even won the city of Philadelphia, a Federalist stronghold. If Beckley's campaign worked in Pennsylvania, it could work again in future elections. And they got started right away. In the summer of 1797, gossip journalist James T. Callender wrote a series of pamphlets titled The History of the United States for 1796. Callender promised readers that he would publish smoking gun evidence of Hamilton's improper conduct as Treasury Secretary. One of the pamphlets cited documents that allegedly proved misconduct between Hamilton and two men, Jacob Klingman and James Reynolds. On July 8th, Hamilton responded in the Federalist Press. He fessed up to the legitimacy of the documents, but flatly denied any improper conduct. Callender fired back. We shall presently see this great master of morality, although himself the father of a family, confessing that he had an illicit correspondence with another man's wife. Hamilton found himself again in a familiar position. He would have to own up to the affair, this time in public. In mid-July of 1797, he wrote a 95-page response that would come to be called the Reynolds Pamphlet. The pamphlet vindicated him, but it ruined his reputation and was the final nail in the coffin of his political ambitions. After reading the pamphlet, Abigail Adams wrote, Alas, alas, how weak is human nature. She may have been glad to see Hamilton get his just desserts, but as president, her husband had more pressing concerns. During John Adams' presidency, partisanship was becoming rampant. The battles under his administration were endless. In Congress in particular, the conflicts were beginning to escalate from wars of words to acts of political savagery. It's February 15, 1798, in Philadelphia's Congress Hall. The members of the House of Representatives are gathered in the Congressional Chamber. The floor belongs to Congressman Matthew Lyon, a Republican from Vermont. A crowd of spectators watch from the gallery as Lyon bellows. If we, the representatives of the House, are not for the common man, then we are against him. If we are against him, then we must forsake the name of Republican and join the ranks of President Adams. From across the room, Federalist Congressman Roger Griswold of Connecticut can barely contain his anger. He watches with disgust as Congressman Lyon plugs his lip with fresh tobacco and puffs himself up. I dare say, gentlemen, at the risk of immodesty, there's never been a greater champion of the common man than yours truly. Not even Mr. Jefferson? No, not even Jefferson. <laughs> Griswold shakes his head in disgust. Mr. Griswold, do you scowl at me, sir? Griswold rises to address Lyon. He calls out from across the room. I do not scowl at you, sir, but I do scowl. At what, may I ask? At the mere thought of it. Thought of what? That such a man as yourself can make such a claim. 
Tell me, Mr. Lyon, when you fight for your constituents, will you do so with a wooden sword? Was that not, Mr. Lyon, your weapon of choice during the revolution? Furious, Lyon leaps to his feet. He storms down the aisle towards Griswold and meets him face to face. The room falls silent. You insult me, sir. Your record in the war does that on its own. Will you retract, Mr. Griswold? I will not. Lyon's face is beat red with anger. He rears back his head, opens his lip, and spits a stream of tobacco juice on Griswold's face. Griswold and Lyon were immediately separated. The galleries were emptied. When the Speaker brought the House back to order, a motion was made to place Lyon in the custody of the Sergeant-at-Arms. The motion was defeated. Two weeks later, Griswold had his revenge. He attacked Lyon with a wooden cane, striking him repeatedly. Lyon defended himself with a pair of tongs from a nearby fireplace. The men brawled on the floor of the house and traded punches before they were pulled apart by their colleagues. The underlying cause of the Griswold-Lyon scuffle was personal, but it was also political. Griswold was a staunch supporter of President John Adams. Lyon thought Adams was leading the country towards disaster. The fight was indicative of the partisan climate of the Adams administration and the upcoming presidential election. In 1796, in spite of rampant political discord, the electoral process had worked. The peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next had occurred without incident. But in the election of 1800, unprecedented partisanship would put that process to the test and bend the electoral system almost to the point of breaking. The 1800 contest would result in the first electoral tie in American history. And in the midst of the chaos, New York Senator Aaron Burr would see an opportunity to fulfill his ambition, take the presidency, and secure his legacy. But once again, the path to his goal would be blocked by Alexander Hamilton. He would deny Burr the presidency and forever alter the course of American history. In 1796, Hamilton's backroom scheme had failed. But in 1800, he would try again. And this time, with the future of the country weighing in the balance, Alexander Hamilton would succeed. This is Episode 3 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1796, The First Contest. On the next episode, the election of 1800. As John Adams and Thomas Jefferson grapple for the presidency in one of the closest elections in American history, Alexander Hamilton sets his sights again on a longtime political foe, Colonel Aaron Burr. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. 
American Elections Wicked Game is an Airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.